Hi, I'm Michael Williams, Artistic Director of Sydney Writers' Festival. We hope you enjoy this conversation recorded live at the 2021 Festival. Hello everybody and welcome to Sydney Writers' Festival 2021. My name is Claire Wright and I'm a Professor of History at La Trobe University in Melbourne. I'm delighted to welcome you all here to A Lie Agreed Upon, where we're going to unpack the genre of historical fiction with three marvellous practitioners of this dark art. I'd like to begin by acknowledging that we are meeting on the stolen land of the Gadigal people and that their sovereignty was never ceded. I pay my respects to elders past and present and thank them for their hospitality in allowing us to be on their country here today. It always was and it always will be Aboriginal land. Being Melbourne-based, I live and work on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, where the Woiwurrung word Womanjeka is used as a greeting. Womanjeka is generally translated into English as simply welcome, but I've recently learned that it actually means welcome, what is your purpose? And I think this is a terrific way to frame any coming together of friends or strangers. And I'd like to invoke it here today when our purpose is to ask the question, what are an author's responsibilities and burdens when it comes to telling the truth about the past? It's a big and it's an important question. Now, let me introduce our fabulous panelists. To my left, Mirandi Riwau is the author of Stone Sky Gold Mountain, which won the Queensland Literary Award for Fiction and the inaugural ARA Historical Novel Prize. Her novella, The Fish Girl, won Seizure's Viva La Novella 5 and was shortlisted for the Stella Prize. Her work has appeared in Best Australian Stories, Mianjin, Review of Australian Fiction, Griffith Review, and Best Australian Stories. And of course, you probably also know that Mirandi's book was shortlisted for the Stella Prize and for the Arbia Awards, which were announced in Sydney last night. It is, has really um, uh, hit the mark, let's say that. It's a beautiful book. Mirandi has a PhD in creative writing and literary studies from Queensland University of Technology. So please welcome Dr. Mirandi Riwal. <clears throat> Sienna Brown, to my far right, was born in Kingston, Jamaica and grew up in Canada, where she was a professional dancer with the Toronto Dance Theatre Company. On her arrival in Sydney, she was accepted into afters and after graduating became an award-winning documentary director. Sienna's first novel, Master of My Fate, won the 2020 MUD Literary Prize for the best debut literary novel by an Australian writer, and it was also shortlisted for the ARA Historical Novel Prize. Please welcome Sienna Brown. <clears throat> now, many of you will know Stephen Carroll, uh, as the multi-award winning author of 12 novels, including A World of Other People, which was the joint winner of the Prime Minister's Literary Award, and The Time We Have Taken, which was the winner of the Commonwealth Writers' Prize for the Southeast Asia and Pacific region, and the Miles Franklin Award in 2008. 
Forever Young was shortlisted for the Victorian Premier's Literary Award and the Prime Minister's Literary Award in 2016. And his novel, A New England Affair, was shortlisted for the Victorian Premier's Literary Award in 2018. And Stephen's most recent novel is O. Okay, please welcome Stephen Carroll. Now, let's dive into this disquieting idea of a lie agreed upon. I'm not usually a fan of readings during panel sessions at writers' festivals because they generally take up so much time and there are so many questions to ask, but I have asked our writers today to start by giving us a taste from their latest books. And I'm doing this because I really think that each of these books is just so beautiful and that the voices are so strong and so different that I want you to feel their characters in your bloodstream as we talk about the more esoteric aspects of the craft of writing historical fiction. So if I can ask Mirandi first. Mirandi might uh, introduce the passage that she's going to read, but let me just let you know that Mirandi's book is set um, in the Palmer River goldfields of far north Queensland in the 1870s. Thank you, Claire. Um, so this is um, from Ying's point of view. Ying has come over with her brother to search for gold in North Queensland. Um, she's a young woman, but she's dressed up as a boy so she can um, pass on the gold fields with her brother. Um, and Mary, who she mentions in here, Miriam, is a young white Australian woman who works in Maytown, the town itself. Weak sunlight twinkles through the canopy of leaves and Ying wipes the sleep from her eyes. The fabric of her shirt and pants are damp with morning dew, as is the grass that surrounds her. Ying looks across at the young woman, Mary, but she's still asleep. Her mouth hangs ajar and her left eyelid twitches. Her hair is the colour of red earth, as fine as a silkworm's thread. When Ying led her here the night before, she thought they would hide for a short period only, but Mary sank to the grass, resting her hands in the nest of her skirt. She gazed up past the paper barks to the stars, and that's when Ying saw she was crying again. She said many things in a hard little voice, too swiftly for Ying to quite catch their full meaning. Sunbirds whirr among the drooping leaves. A honeysucker, as sombre as a monk, lands on a branch, watches her for several seconds and then swoops off. Ying blinks up at the circle of sky and thinks of how she's like a bird, a migratory bird, perhaps a swallow, having fled her home's winter with hopes to return in its spring. She recalls that first night at sea when she lurched against Lai Yu's shoulder in the creaking dark, the choppy seas hurtling them from far from home. How sure she was that they'd made the wrong decision. How determined she was to board the very first boat home, whatever the cost. But try as she may, Ying cannot remember what she felt in those panicked hours. She can't recreate that sensation of loss, heavy in her stomach, or the disquiet that must have scrabbled its talons behind her ribcage. Because now she feels content, revels in her life in Maytown, working for Jimmy and exploring the township at night. She feels bad whenever she, her thoughts are drawn back to her mother, Lei Yu, or her younger siblings, but mostly they lie beneath diverting layers of routine and small pleasures. 
Indeed, Ying has lain in this very spot many times before, staring up at the clear sky in snatched moments between the errands she runs for Jimmy, and wondered if she could even return to her old life. She's not sure she would want to live without the freedoms she's experiences here. Freedoms, she realises, that are associated with both a lack of family to watch over her and with disguising herself as a boy. How else would she have discovered her knack for adding numbers and returning change, or tasted the marvellous tart sweetness of marmalade, or known about how men visit women like the one Miss Mary works for? It's her newfound sense of exploration that led Ying to this private place. While waiting for Lopak to finish wrenching spinach from the soil, she'd wandered down to the river to gaze at the brackish water as it cut across jagged black rocks. She continued until she came across a fisherman, lounged on a low-bearing branch, his feet swinging above the water. He frowned at Ying, so she retreated, dodging her way through the copse of tea trees, and that's how she came across this grassy mound, hidden within a ring of paperbarks and shrubbery. Ying notices dark clouds massing above. Time to return to the shop. Face Jimmy's ire. Thank you. I'm just going to let that sit with you. We'll come back to some of the Thank themes. Thank you. Stephen, could you give us a reading from your book O, which is set in wartime and post-war, Second World War, France? Take us to France and the world of Dominique Ory. Um, yeah, uh, my book's about um, a scandalous novel, erotic novel that was published in the 1950s, uh, written by a woman called Dominique Ory, but that wasn't her real name. That was her resistance name. Um, her actual name was Anne de Clos, um, but she published her novel under the name of Pauline Rayage. Uh, so she had quite a collection of names. This... Um, this section uh, is her recalling um, when she discovered at the age of 15 her father's collection of erotica <clears throat> or porn, depending on <laughs> what side you're on. Through an open door, Dominique imagines she sees the dome of the father's head in his study at his desk. This study is so synonymous with a father, it is almost impossible to look at it without seeing him there and imagining that he actually is in his chair and spotting her on the point of rising and greeting her. She runs ghostly fingers over his bald scalp, just like she did when she was five, 15 and 30, for, she, for he has always been bald and she never could resist running her fingers over the shiny dome whenever she was with him in his study. Books in English and French all around them, a private universe of stories. Forbidden to most girls, but not her. Against her mother's wishes, for she distrusts books, especially the books that she knows her husband has in his collection, as much as she distrusts the flesh. Dominic drops her satchel, the same one she has had since school, on a chair and ambles through to the study, vacated for now, for her parents are in the country with her son, but with her father's presence everywhere. Scribbled notes, pens, a magnifying glass, a permanent dint in the leather armchair where he sits, an ashtray from New York, old copies of Punch. But it's a particular corner of the library that she drifts to. The corner where, one afternoon, at 15, 
She had the place to herself and was drawn to a locked cabinet that she was intrigued by. Like Alice, she was curious. And the more she stared at the cabinet, the curiouser and curiouser it became. Alice was tall. Alice was 15. Alice would not be denied. And taking a deep breath, with the desire to know and the dread of knowing, the guilt of the robber and the right to rob, all swirling around in her as if she had drunk of the secret potion of curiosity itself. She reached out, and to her amazement, that she couldn't help but feel it opened because it was ready to be opened. The musty scent of books locked away for years poured out into the air, leather-bound, hard-bound paperbacks. They stood side by side, the lettering of their titles glittering in their spines. And like some tomb robber breathing the air of the pharaohs, she knelt before the cabinet, scarcely daring to move or disturb the scene. She knelt there almost in a gesture of prayer as she would in some solemn chapel until her thighs and knees ached, mesmerised by the book's titles. The Letters of a Portuguese Nun, Justine, The Wayward Head and Heart, The Sofa, A Moral Tale, Clarissa, The Decameron, Dangerous Liaisons. The list of titles went on and on, and at a glance she could tell that these were no ordinary books. Part Curious Alice, part robber, plundering her father's private things. She stared at the tantalising prospects in front of her, telling herself she had no right, but also telling herself that if they were never meant to be read, then the door would never have been left unlocked. Mm, thank you, Stephen. Mm -hmm. Sienna, if we could uh, finish the readings with you now. Sienna's book is set in the first decades of the 1800s in colonial Jamaica and later the penal settlement of Botany Bay. Take us there, Sienna. All right. So the section I'm going to read has just taken place a burial for a slave on the plantation. And Kala, the old Obia woman, is talking to William, who's the main protagonist in the book, um, about what's going to happen next. He's only 12 years old, but she's sort of taking him under his wing and he's, she's trying to teach him stuff. In nine days' time, we're going to have a wake. Help Johnny's spirit reach the afterlife. Return to the ancestors. Leave this earth for good. You believe that, Kala? You really think the spirit live on and on? Kala look at me like she's weighing up what to tell me. It's like the breath of life. Just because you can't see it, don't mean it not there. Yes, the spirit is real. It must come from somewhere. So it must return to wherever it come from. We's not some animal. All the ritual, them, give us strength. Strength to face the day, the night, to face the agony of the shadow. You think Johnny Duppy go and try return? Yes, Willie, say Kala. Is why me tell you to bury him deep. Johnny living on happiness during the day. Is why him drink bitter cassava every night. Is that what kill him? No, she sigh. Johnny die from woman fever. A fever that never end. Me never see Johnny with no woman. 
is a long time ago now, Kala say, filling her clay pipe. When Johnny was two-legged, him fall in love with a young field slave named Flora. She pretty as can be. All the men lust after her, especially Johnny. We wouldn't be surprised if old Master William lust after her himself. Kala take a pause. Get me to light a twig from the embers of the fire, pass it to her, smoke up her pipe. Johnny think because him head driver, Flora going to love him. Be proud to be him wife. But, she say, puffing away, she fall in love with Kwashi, a slave same age as her from another plantation. In them days, old Master William, him always jobbing out slaves to bring in a little extra money, that's how they meet. And the first time we all hear about this love business is when Flora gone missing. Discover she run away with Quashie. Them escape? Willie asked, hoping them did. Get as far as Kingston before the slave hunters catch up with them. Poor little things, Kala say, shaking her head. Too young, too foolish. Think love going save them. Don't know must stay well hidden for a long, long time before master going forget about them. So what happened? Well, Kwashi got shot in the back when him tried to run. Only lived for a few more days. And the slave hunters, they just drag Flora right back here, right back to the plantation. Pick up a big reward. Old Master William, him plenty vexed. Brand her a runaway on both cheeks. Got Johnny to flog her and him do it with a vengeance. After that, Flora turned wild. Offer herself to every man, any man, not Johnny. One day we find her floating face down in the river. No one know what happened, but we can guess. Must be Johnny doing. Oh, Master William, well, him thinks so too. Have him flog, set an example. Calla take a long draw on her pipe. I see a sadness rise up in her. Oh, crippled Johnny, him never the same. Turn mean, full of cruel sorrow, keep to himself. Yes, Kala say, sucking on her pipe. Johnny Duppy going come back for sure. Must do plenty hard work to calm him sad and angry spirit. Lead him to find peace. Up in a tree, a patoo start hooting. Swoop down low, fly over our heads. Make me edge a little closer to Kala. No need to fear, Willie, she say. Patu is special for you. Me heard Patu calling outside the hut when you was a baby. Is why me put you under me protection. When Patu call out, you must stop. Listen hard. Find out the message she's trying to tell you. I know Kala owe me short life, but it's the first time she tell me why she take me under her wing, and it make me feel mighty blessed. I think Kala done speaking, but then she turn, look me in the eye, you must be careful, Willie. Fate have him beady eye upon you. You're going travel down a path unknown to even me, and him going twist and turn you, blow you about like the leaf them in a howling wind. Oh, you know this color? Me seen it when we first look upon you as a baby. Now you're old enough to hear these things. You're going need plenty strength to walk the road you have to travel down. Not strength on the outside, but strength on the inside. So one day, with a bit of luck, you might be the massa, massa of your fate. But promise me, Willie, she say, 
hugging me close. Promise me you're not going to end up like old crippled Johnny, a lost soul all alone, a soul that live in this world but have no wish to be in it. Me promise, I say, hearing all her words, not really knowing what them mean, letting the words drop down inside to wait to be heard afresh another day. Beautiful. Thanks, Sienna. I, I hope you can see why I wanted to start that way, because um, it has taken some time, but what it has really done, I think, is to illustrate what the best of historical fiction does, which is to take us to worlds, is to take us away to a different place. I think, you know, we have just all travelled in the last 15 minutes um, away from this t time and place in Sydney and to these extraordinary worlds that these authors have, have created for us. So let, let's just dig down into that a bit now. Let's start with the with the peak nerd question of research. Okay, so I'm an historian, I do my work in the archives, and then I tell my readers what I have discovered. I can't gild the lily um, or embroider the truth. But Sienna, tell us about your research to writing process. How and where did you discover William Buchanan? Okay, well William was discovered at High Park Barracks in the convict indent. I was working there as a tour guide and it was one of those crazy August days. It was raining, it was cold, I was feeling very depressed and I decided to check to see if anybody was in the archives that was like me. And I did. And I was so shocked because, of course, Anglo-Celtic convicts is what we're used to hearing about. And there was William Buchanan's name, along with several other West Indian convicts. And that goes all the way back to 1788, I discovered. Um, and then from there, that was sort of what I would call the inciting incident. And then from there, I moved forward in time in the Australian section. And that came about through newspapers. Uh, there was a lot of writing about him as a bush ranger. He used to terrorise up Old South Head Roll. If you're a Sydney person, you'll know where that is. And then I worked backwards and then discovered that there was a slave register and his name and his family's name was on it. So sort of then I was able to set up that timeline and put the key elements within that and start to plot out the stories. And Stephen, your central character is also based on a real person. Yep. The author of the story of O, Dominique Ori, although as you've told us, she had lots of names. How did you research her life? And how much meat did you have to put on the bones of facts to create this beautifully well-rounded character that you've given us? Um, can I just go into it by saying why I wrote the book? Yes. I'll be as quick as I can. Um, I sat on this book for about 10 years while I was completing Glenroy novels and T.S. Eliot novels. Um, but what struck me when I read it um, was the repetition, or two things actually, the repetition of key words. Now, this scandalous novel, and even by today's standards, it's a scandalous novel. Um, um, and it was a scandal at the time, although it still remains the biggest science. The first published in 1950... 1954, conceived of and written in the rain shadow of the most shameful phase of French history, that is, the Nazi occupation of France. Now, I, what struck me was uh, 
not the dirty doings in the chateau, um, but rather the repetition of key words that just kept... It's a, it's a novella, really. It's only about 40,000 words or 45 at most. But words that kept coming back again and again and again were surrender, defeat, submission, humiliation, um, shame, um, the odd occupy, masters constantly going through it. Um, and also the plot line, it's basically about a woman who willingly prostitutes herself and is pimped um, by her boyfriend. Um, and that I saw immediately as both of them as being unconscious metaphors and mirrors of the time that produced it. The key words synonymous with the occupation itself, surrender, defeat, submission, and the plot line itself, exactly what happened to France when they surrendered and Marshal Petain um, handed over the country basically to the Germans and they retreated to Vichy um, and where they had uh, um, a, a free government. So, my contention the whole way through the book is that the book is for the occupation. Um, uh, she unconsciously took the history out of her book. It's a, a erotic fantasy. Um, and I put the history back in um, and contextualised all of that submission, defeat, shame, etc. Um, but the research... Um, I had to read, there's only one biography of Dominique Auré, and um, that, that's in French, it's 700 pages. Um, I had to read that with the help of a French-English dictionary um, and the help of my French friends um, in France. Um, I read copiously French literature at the time. I read the whole of, basically the whole of Simone de Beauvoir, who I believe was a, quite a fan of the book. Um, mm. And... Um, uh, Sartre, I, I read um, so uh, uh, any any kind of French literature of the time. Sartre, I, I never realised how good Sartre was. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, fantastic! The, the, the trilogy, uh, the Roads to Freedom, is all set around that period, and so it was tremendously useful. So I did a lot of research. I went to Paris. I, I know. I mean, we've lived in Paris, you know, mm. um, uh, and so and my French never improved. It's still crap, you know, um, but um, enough to get me through the, the biography. And I went to the locations uh, where she grew up. An astonishing woman. Um, uh, uh, she, she almost wrote herself, really. Um, amazingly sophisticated intelligence. She was the first woman ever to sit on the Gallimard Reading Committee. And her lover, Jean Paulin, for whom she wrote Story of O, was also on the Gallimard Reading Committee. Um, there are certain things you can't make up, and I'll stop here. Um, but when they were sitting on the reading committee um, with Gaston Gallimard and Albert Camus, and Camus loved it. He thought he, he, he thought it was a wonderful book. Um, Gaston Gallimard thought it was smart and porn. Um, and uh, it, it's a scene you couldn't make up, but the two people who knew who Pauline Riage was were Dominique Auré and Jean Paulin, um, uh, but nobody else did. And so they sat there quite silently through that meeting while everybody argued and eventually Gaston Gallimard said, no, we're not going to publish porn like this. This is the house of Gallimard. And, um, and so apparently Camus and Gaston Gallimard were face-to-face uh, -face arguing, really heated, 
banging down manuscripts, um, really getting stuck into each other. Those, uh, those Gallimard reading committee meetings were uh, like a brawl. Uh, they were astonishing. Um, so anyway, that's, that's just a flavour of <laughs> what I got into. Crazy world. <laughs> so Mirandi, fascinating. William Buchanan is a real character. Dominic, obviously Stephen's book. He's got Camus. He's got Sartre. He's he's not in it, but you've read it. He's got Camus. He's got real characters. Yes. He's got these real meetings that happened at Garamard yes. um, that have gone down in kind of literary history. You have a different starting point. All of your characters are fictional. Yes, but you your time and place are deeply researched and at times frighteningly real. So what drew you to the Palmer River goldfields of the 1870s and how did you find your way there with such pinpoint accuracy? Ah, well, it took a long time. I guess the research took a long time and I did start... um, So I wanted to write a cross-cultural kind of love story, write, you know, maybe a Chinese digger falling in love with a white Australian woman because... Um, I've gotten to know families who have come from, you know, all that time ago, you know, the families that have existed until now. And I just find that really fascinating that they connected in, in those times, you know, in the 1800s and got married and had children. Um, but then it became a, a different beast. So I, I first started all my um, research in Victoria and all my reading, a lot of the reading about the gold rush is about the Victorian goldfields. But... I guess um, it's so obvious everybody thinks of the Victorian goldfields and other people have written about it anyway. So I, and I'm from Brisbane, so I slowly worked my way up the coast until I mm. found um, the Palmer River goldfields. And the great thing about the Palmer River goldfields are they've got, um, you know, in Cooktown there's a few museums that are just brilliant. Like, you know, they love it. But it's just amazing because... Cooktown at the time was thriving, had many more streets than it has now. Most of the businesses were run by Chinese. There were four times more Chinese to the white Australians there at the time in the 1870s. Maytown itself was a thriving town. And I always say, we know it's thriving because they had a lemonade factory, but they had a post office and they had, you know, like um, a bank and police station, school eventually. But now if you go there... It's, there's nothing. Mm. It's all just back to forest. The, there's the dirt road still and some plaques of, you know, what Chinese shops were along there and the bakery and, you know, the post office still, the stumps are there, but that's it. So what was good for me was, so there's a map of what May, Maytown, you know, the streets and everything, but there's nothing there now. So for me, it was just really good in that it was so flourishing at the time and there was a bit, a bit written about it. But I, so I could, because there's nothing there now, I could make it up again. Mm. And I chose not to use real people because I knew a lot of, I did meet a couple of descendants of the people, like one Chinese shop there, his great grandson. Um, And after I wrote the book, luckily in the book, I've made the postmistress really a lovely woman because um, this, (laughs) this woman got in touch with me and her grandmother was that postmistress. So, but I didn't use real names because I knew they were, the people from Maytown would have pride in their, their you know, descendants or ancestors there. So, um, so I did make up the people. Mm. And what I wanted to mostly do, I guess, with the Chinese is, you know, we always read about these Chinese hordes who came over, mm. you know, the thousands of them and they're on the gold fields, but we don't think of the individuals. So I did um, make up the individuals to, to, to really look at why they might have come here as individuals instead of like as this sort of, mass sort of trafficking of people. Mm. Yeah. 
So place is really important to all of you and even research being in the place, and Palmer River, France, and you grew up in Jamaica yourself, Sienna. But I, I think what you also can see from, from the readings is that voice is absolutely essential to what draws us into the worlds of these people. And in many respects, what you've done is give voice to the voiceless through these, these narratives. Sienna, as we've seen, William's patois is, is really strong. And in many respects, William's patois still lives in my head. It was beautiful to hear you, you voice that for me. But, but I have, months after reading Master of My Fate, I have his patois in my head. How, how did you create the cadences of the language? Did you need a voice coach as an actor might need a voice coach? And I also want to ask as a kind of follow-up question, do you think a white writer could write that sort of language? Or might there have been a kind of danger of appropriation, a kind of lyrical blackface? Okay. Um, I'll work backwards. Yeah. I think it's more about culture. Mm -hmm. I think it's more about can someone from a different culture write about the other culture, I think, rather than the colour of the person's skin. In fact, they have lots of white Jamaicans who were there from 400 years ago when Columbus came down, and they speak really broad patois. So I, I don't think it's around that. Um, I, I do feel that, obviously, going back into my ancestral past, it was there. But as I was starting to write, and I did a whole craft section on it in terms of writing in a very specific way and almost putting on uh, a straight jacket on myself so that I only chose words from the 19th century or I didn't mm. apply a contemporary filter to that word and made sure that every word that I chose within that, I also used a different type of sentencing around it and also made sure that it was uh, continuous, that, that if I used this word here, I used that throughout the whole piece. Mm. But as I started to write, and I, I spent a whole year doing that, uh, after about six months, I started to feel William's voice. And I don't think, and I think we all know that as writers, you start to feel the voice inside, inside your head. And I no longer needed that straight jacket because it's really more, I think what you're really relating to is the emotional content of William himself, of those characters in that place, in that time. And that's what sets up that lyricism, if you like. Um, and, you know, I think it's deeply embedded in a strange way in all of us. Hmm. I think. And, and the authenticity of the voice as and well. And the authenticity so, of yeah. the voice, that's right. And after a while, I could tell that's not William's voice. That's my own. As a writer, I've, you know, overlaid my voice on top of the character. And then you have to pull back. You have to go, hang on a minute. That person wouldn't say it like that. The intention is right. But what's happening underneath isn't. So that was a great discovery. And I think we've probably all been through that process. It's a fascinating way to think about it. Steve, I I've always felt that the most charismatic and compelling characters in your books are the women. And I remember the first book of yours that I read and fell in love with your writing was The Love Song of Lucy McBride, told, told mm. from the perspective of a young mm. girl. Um, so in this sense, O oh, was the book you were meant to write. But what are the politics of a cis man writing in the voice of a woman? and in particular writing about her desires and her passions and her, her deepest, darkest sexual mm. urges. How do you put yourself in Dominique's shoes? I've 
been asked this question quite a bit about the female characters in the novels, and it's nothing unusual in my fiction, I don't think, if you look back on the Glenroy novels um, and certainly the T.S. Eliot novels as well, it's the women who are the strong characters. Um, now, this wasn't planned, it wasn't plotted, or it, it, it's, um, it, it simply emerged mm. in that way. I've never been afraid of actually taking on the um, uh, character of a woman. Um, and um, and I, I've wondered about this, and it possibly comes from the fact that I come from a family of very, very strong women. Um, and I've written about them in, in the Glenroy novels. My, um, my grandmother, at the age of 40, um, gave birth to my father and brought him up by herself in the face. This is the, the subject of The Year of the Beast, the final of the Glenroy, or the first of the Glenroy novels. Um, and she brought him up um, uh, uh, in the face of the Catholic Church, telling her to farm the child out, the face of the state and the face of the family. She just stood tall and she said, I will bring my boy up myself. And she did. And apparently she had a commanding presence. She could hold a room. And my, fa- uh, my mum was in awe of her, you know. Um, Aunt Catherine, great Aunt Catherine, um, she, um, she lived in a tent in the, what was then the countryside of Melbourne, the suburb now of Nunda Wadding, and um, she, she used to just travel around the country with a tent and a, and a, and a rifle, and she just did all sorts of um, odd jobs and work all around the country, and she eventually settled back in her tent. She bought a block of land, and um, Sydney Nolan saw her um, in the paper um, in the Herald, she was a page three girl, um, age of 70. And, um, <laughs> and um, Sidney Nolan, we think, drove out to Nunawadding um, to interview her because he did, he researched his paintings. Um, and he painted her. And that painting now is in the, um, uh, the, the National Gallery in Canberra and it has a whole wall to itself. And it's called Woman in Woman and Tent, and it, it's 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 a bloody terrific painting. Um, but we we are pretty sure that she had a frying pan in her hand and she <laughs> was going to attack him mm. because she was mm. a very feisty woman. So look, it's just a long-winded way of saying that. Um, see, the name Carol itself comes down through the matriarchal line. Mm. Really, I should. Uh, my father's father. My my father never knew his father. He was what they used to call a bastard child, um, and, and affected him his whole life. He adored his mother, and um, uh, my name should really be Duska. And, and we're probably Jewish too. Um, it's um, we're going into that side of the family. Mm. Um, so um, it, it, the name Carol is is matriarchal. So mm. it, I, I suspect I've never really been. Look, I think men are afraid of women. Um, there's a beautiful line in Milan Kundera, you know, are you afraid of women? Of course. <clears throat> um, but I've never actually been afraid of taking on. Hmm. the character of a hmm. woman. And I, I get this question a bit. Well, it, do, you know? it does strike me that O is a very courageous novel to have written. Uh, I know that you have written strong female characters for a long time, but in the particular era in which we are going mm. through at the moment, it strikes me a, as being a, a, is particularly courageous yeah. to, to mm. take on. But that sounds like, um, yes, Minister, brave <laughs> decision. Brave decision, <laughs> maybe stupid. Um, <laughs> Mirandi... In Stone Sky Gold Mountain, you're really writing against the grain of orthodox narratives of 19th century 
historical stereotypes, particularly against the Chinese, you know, so the ravaging sure. hordes before yes. you met, you, yeah. you referenced that, particularly about the Chinese and women. Um, so, you know, instead of the sneaky Asian, you give us a loyal and steadfast one. And instead of the, the good time girl whore with a heart of gold, you give us a victim of domestic and sexual violence. Mm. Um, one reviewer called this your piercing post-colonial gaze, which sounds very highfalutin, um, <laughs> but you know, it's, it's accurate too. So I want to know how you invoke this sort of contemporary revisionist sensibility without losing a sense of the authenticity of your characters. Or does indeed your unconventional approach restore authenticity? Good Good question. Good long question. Yes, sorry. I'll, try to, I'll try to answer it. I do. So one of my arguments is, so I don't, I don't think being prescient is helpful in historical fiction. So I'm not going to have a, a very, you know, feminist um, character unless I have her reading, um, you know, Woolet mm -hmm. um, back in the day, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so what I do mostly is I will take, so what I've done with this novel in particular, I've taken personal accounts or, you know, primary sources from that, that period, um, but mostly that sort of personal account, I guess, by a white man and, you know, and his, and, you know, how they've written it might be in a pompous way or a gleeful way even, um, especially about, say, the Chinese and the licensing or women. And I'll switch it to be that same scenario, but from the Chinese point of view. So then they're seeing it, you're actually seeing it from the other point of view of, your expensive license or, or, I mean, and domestic violence is, is timeless, isn't it? You know, I mean, anyone, I don't even need to be present or whatever with that one. Um, so that's, I guess that's what I try to do. So I try to take whatever preoccupies me now anyway um, and write it ab about it in that setting. But especially, especially what I liked to do is take really quite... Um, because, you know, a lot of historical sources are not lots to us, but most people won't read them. Mm. We're not going to read them now. So I think the privilege of being a fiction writer is that I will, in my research, read them and I can then present them in a sort of uh, a way that can be, you know, accessed easily. And you can read and it's a reminder. beyond them is what you're saying. Yes. Well. You can read around them and under yes. them and respond and talk back to them. Yes, but also show what hasn't changed. So a couple of the scenes, including the domestic scene and the racist scene, I actually took from contemporary, you know, events. I took them from a contemporary events and sort of like watched them on YouTube or whatever and then rewrote them in my historical fiction. Um, so, mm. so, yeah, so it's, mm. it's a bit sad that it's not far-fetched <laughs> then or now. Okay, yeah. so... Let's then use that as a segue to talking about this idea of an author's responsibility right. to truth-telling yes. about the past, yes. the, the, the moral equation, if you want, there. I wonder whether getting into the heads of your 19th century characters, or by getting into their heads, you're trying to say something about the truth of being a Eurasian woman in contemporary Australia. How much do you draw from your own truth to inform your historical fiction? Well, I guess my own truth, I mean, from the very beginning, from even writing the novel or even wanting to write the novel and do the research comes from my own truth anyway as being Eurasian and having grown up, say, in the 70s in Brisbane where there, you know, 
and I didn't come across that, that terrible racism, but just being different. So I wanted to write a book about exiles. I wanted to write a book about those who are sort of on the fringes anyway. Um, what was the other part of your question about... Whether you're oh, the responsibility, the, res the responsibility to truth telling. Yeah. So one and, thing, and whose truth is yeah, I suppose it's, what it's, I'm getting at there. It's that, that was a hard one because I did go into it wanting to write about racism, mm. um, but what I found, of course, with the research actually was the horrible things that were happening to the Guga Yalanji people, the local um, Aboriginal people. Actually, that was the big story. It's not my story to tell, but it was the, actually that's where the real horrors lie, you know, because, and then what I wanted to show, I never wanted to do, I didn't want to do that, oh, but we were friendly or, oh, somebody saved somebody, blah, blah, blah. I wanted to show that actually it wasn't just white settlers or whatever, it was the Chinese as well who were complicit in what happened to, mm. you know, the, the... The Palmer River massacres are yes. happened so during they this were, time. You know, between so just like being there, they were complicit in, you know, in mm. um, the deaths and the displacement of the Kukulunji people. So I think for me... That's what I felt most responsible about in writing the novel was getting that right without appropriating anything. It's not my story to tell, but also to show. But truthfully, too, I wanted to show that people like Miriam were just sort of naturally racist. Mm. I mean, some, some people were, were much more welcoming of Chinese than others, but everybody did use words like chink or chinky or mm. Chinaman, you know, like it yellow, you know, like um, and how they treated Aboriginal people. I wanted to show, and at the and the Chinese were the same. I wanted to show it was a different time. Like it was more okay to be racist, even though obviously lots of people still think it's okay. But anyway, yes. But I did feel a huge responsibility to, I guess, represent what happened as as well as I could, mm. with as much thought as I could, and and care. And I think that's all I could have done. And respect, mm. yeah. And even just telling the story in the first yeah. place brings it out. I mean, yeah. Not many people do know about no, the that's River right. massacres. Yeah. Sienna, I'll flip that question that I put to Mirandi in a kind of way about Mirandi casting her own present truth backwards. Mm -hmm. You've said about writing this novel that it felt like you were bringing the past into your living present, mm -hmm. echoes of which... I believe, surrounds us, lives on inside us. These, these are your words. So I'm interested to know how coming to grips with an historical story has helped you to understand your place in the present, your present home, where you find yourself after your own long journey um, through life. In, in this sense is, is, I know again, another long question, long questions. <laughs> is this, in this sense, is the truth-telling process a kind of therapeutic one? Look, I think it is, and I can, I'll have to answer in a couple of different ways. First of all, in terms of working with real people, I, was a, I had a bit of a problem with that in terms of appropriating who mm. these individuals were. And, you know, for a long time, I actually used their real names based on what I saw in the slave register. And I set up scenarios between them, which I have no idea. They're just human scenarios. So I was feeling quite daunted by that. And, and yet I understood that as long as I kept my moral compass in a certain direction and I had respect, then it would be okay. Mm. Um, 
But in writing the book, what happened is, because I haven't lived in my birthplace for a very, very long time. I've lived in Canada. I've lived here for a long time. So in a way, I had to access the information, even though I did all the research, in a different way. And I feel what's happening is that I went into some kind of ancestral dreaming, Mm. an ancestral dreaming that we all have, that we all share. You know, everybody in this room has an ancestor or ancestors standing beside them, behind them. And I always feel that when I go into places, there's this long line of people behind us that we bring with us. And it's our responsibility, certainly if you've taken your task up as a writer, to represent them in a certain way. I felt I needed to represent my guys, the slaves, within this. Um, I was very specific about not wanting to represent the plantation owners. They're a little bit in there, but I felt that someone else's. And I really, as Mirandi said, you want to talk, you want to reverse it. You want to talk about it from the other side. So while the book's around slavery, it's actually around what does it feel like to be in bondage as a human being? And you could take race out of it. You can take uh, slavery out of it. Essentially, what does it feel like to be within that situation? What does it feel like to be in a world where another human being feels it's okay that they can actually buy you, Mm. which is such a strange concept, Mm. which we actually have accepted. But so I felt a responsibility to that. But in terms of your question, which I sort of totally digress, Mm. um, it brought me back to a sense of myself Mm. and who I was and where I was standing. And I kept looking outside you know, am am I Australian? Am I Canadian? Am I Jamaican? I'm all of them. And they exist inside me. And all I had to do was be responsible to that person that was inside me. So in a way, it kind of gave me that that grounding. Mm. I became, I found myself. And it had nothing to do with a country. It had to do with my own spirit and the ancestors with me. So mm. <laughs> <laughs> I feel a little tearful. Um, Stephen, this title of this session, A Lie Agreed Upon, comes from a quote that's often attributed to Frederick Nietzsche. What is the truth but a lie agreed upon? Um, Apparently he never actually said that. (laughs) Um, But he did write an unpublished essay about truth-telling in which he said, we still do not know where the urge for truth comes from. So if there is an urge for truth, wherever it comes from, is there also a universal urge to lie? And do all writers of historical fiction agree upon a lie? Uh, I can't talk about all writers, Mm -hmm. but I do. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, um, I'd like to think I'm in good company. People like Milan Kundera, um, he, he would say something very similar. And I'll give you an example. When I was writing O... um, I was in France, I was in Paris, and uh, I handwrite, and I had about 10,000 words, and it was boring. Uh, I, I, was, I had done an enormous amount of research, and my, um, um, uh, my idea, for better or for worse, about research is, and the research for this was just terrific, I, mm. I loved doing it, um, but at the same time, my, my feeling about research is do it, and do it as thoroughly as possible, mm. and once you've done it, Forget it. Um, And what arises in the writing will arise 
naturally, not because you feel the need to put it in. It will, mm. That which was resonant, and the funniest things become resonant, um, but they surface in the mm. writing itself. Um, um, but when I was first writing it, the first 10,000 words, it was kind of like biographical fiction. And, and it, some people make it work, um, but I'm not a great fan of biographical fiction. Um, and so I thought, well, I'm going to have to make this story up. Um, and so that was when I d decided to fictionalise all of that stuff that I'd, I'd read about. Um, because the last thing you want is for the, for the, the reader to be bored. Mm. You know, if the author is bored, then the reader's <laughs> going to be bored. Um, and I, I've, I've always thought writing has to be fun. You know, a lot of people talk about writing as, you know, pulling out teeth and all the rest of it. And fine, that's the way some people write. For me, um, it's got to be fun. If it's not fun, I'm not going to do it. I, I, I mean, I, I always think that writing should be almost an explosive thing. You know, like, like the, the, the Beatles. Uh, they wrote it in half an hour and they recorded it in one one take. Um, so when you hear Please Please Me, for those who remember it, that's, that's live. As same as Twist and Shout. Um, it was live in the studio. So it's got to be fun for me. So maybe lying is much more fun than truth telling. Quite possibly, yeah. Mm. Mm. All um, right. Have we got any questions from the audience? We've got about five minutes. Oh, sorry. That's all right. No, don't mm. apologise. Yep. There's one. Um, if you want to come up to the microphone here, please. Uh, I'm a new author writing a historical fiction based in India, uh, India events that happened around 16th century. Uh, I was thinking, you know, there are things that you can construct from all those uh, biographies. And I go back to uh, recorded history by the Europeans because Indians only have oral history, not recorded mm. history. And I'm tr trying to reconcile the two. But how do I stop um, my current politics influencing the story that I want to bring up about a scholarly woman of the 16th century. Do you want to take that, Mirandi? How, 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 how do you stop your current politics inf interfering with... Yeah, that's what is really, it's really hard because, like I was saying earlier. before, you still want it to be authentic, but also you don't want it to just be an homage because we have books from that period anyway you know um I still I still believe how I would write is I try to be as authentic as possible like I said I don't believe in prescience but say if I was well what I was saying before like if I have a character in um 19th century London who I want to be a bit feminist not feminist but but having those ideas of of, gosh, maybe there is more to than just being at home and, you know, I would have her read something like, what's the Mary name? Mary Wollstonecraft? Yeah. Or, was it Wollstonecraft? Yeah, Wollstonecraft. So um, I, I would try and find my way in then because, because I personally don't try to cut out what my personal politics are at the moment in my historical fiction. Actually, that's what I try to do is tether it to, to my you know, politics of the moment, which would be feminist and cultural diversity. So I sort of work a bit differently. I would try and find an in there, yeah. But, but if you can't, try to be as authentic as possible. Yeah, don't give her a voice that she wouldn't have had, yeah, mm. is what I would do. I think this has been a terrific session. I think that you can see that there um, are many more places that we can go. Mm. Unfortunately, we don't have time. Thank you for being part of this 
today. Um, thanks again to the Sydney Writers' Festival. Be safe. <laughs>